All right, well, good morning, and thank you for braving the cold rain. So we've, we've missed about five chances this year of having a good snow, but <clears throat> somebody keeps telling me about the winters of 19, or the winter of 1960, so I don't want them talking about it anymore because apparently there was like foot after foot, week after week. Some of you all remember that. I don't want to know anything about it, so I'll be happy with the cold rain, all right? Good to have you today. Uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis. This week is Valentine's week. It's usually the week that we think about the one we love and where you always have to buy flowers or chocolate or something as an expression of love, or you'll be in the doghouse for the next several months. So you have been warned, men, okay? Uh, you're welcome. But this morning we're going to look at a passage that's not so much a Valentine's Day passage. As a matter of fact, I've often wondered why God puts things in the Bible like he does. You know, people who do not study God's Word or really dig into it do not appreciate the transparency that God gives us in his Word. He holds nothing back. He paints no perfect pictures of families. As a matter of fact, there's really not a perfect family in the Bible. Did you know that? You can't really find a perfect marriage. You can't really find a perfect family. You want to know why? Come up real close so I can tell you. Here's why. Because there are none. Every family has dysfunction. Every family has problems. Because every family has sinners who make it up. And there's a battle in the midst of the hearts of men and women and women and women and men and men. And when you bring people together who are sinful and have their own desires and own ways, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have problems. Now the, the question becomes, how do you deal with life in the midst of this conflict? Because all of us have it, all of us will have it. If you have not experienced that in your life yet, you will. So how do you deal with that and what does God try to teach us out of it? So in my opinion, God puts stories in the Bible, not just to tell us, history and facts and truths about himself, but he also tells them about us and life and how we cope and deal with that. So when you come to a story like this, I want to go ahead and get this out in the front. The nation of Israel, when they would have read the book of Genesis, would have been where? They would have been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years because they had disobeyed God. And so if you're trying to connect this story with the original readers... I believe God put this in there to remind them of their family roots. In other words, Israel, don't become puffed up and conceited and proud because of your great lineage and heritage. As a matter of fact, you came from a mess of a family. And but by my grace and my hand, you would still be down in Egypt wandering around. So don't boast about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boast about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who brought you out and the one who worked through all of your dysfunction. So now that we've laid that out, and honestly, that's probably the main reason God put this story in there to communicate to them that he is the faithful God who led them through all of their trouble and all of their problems, and he was the one who would bring them all the way to the destination where he wanted them we're going to look at this. We're going to learn some things about God, but we're also going to learn some things about ourselves and how we can relate to each other and be better and also give God all the glory for everything that's done, okay? Are you all with me? I'm going to hurry because I've got a lot to cover, so you all have to stay in tune this morning. You can't wander off in uh, winter wonderland. I'll tell you when it starts snowing. I can see it, okay? But let's pray before we go to God's Word. Father, thank you again for the privilege and just the few moments you give us to look into your Word to learn truths about you and about us and how you shape us and what you want to make of our life. Thank you for loving us, for being intimately involved in our life, even in the details that we can't see. One day we're going to turn around and see how your hand was in every detail of our life. Give us eyes to see that now so that we can honor you and we thank you for all that you do and most importantly, as has been mentioned this morning, we thank you for Jesus our Savior who gives us purpose, direction and also walks with us all the way through this life and even through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you for our great shepherd who loves his sheep 
and never allows anyone to pluck us out of your hand. Thank you for that. And we honor Jesus this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, a little funny. It's not really funny. This is the truth. I, I did some research. Is it legal to marry your first cousin in West Virginia? Now, I have heard so many comments about this. You all must be kin in West Virginia. Karen and I went to get married at the courthouse. I'll tell you this a little funny. We had to fill out a form, and we had to go get blood work back in the day. Did you all have to get blood work? Most people don't have to today, especially you folks here in Virginia. You don't have to get blood work. We had to get it to show that we were not first cousins. Did you know that it is illegal to marry your first cousin in West Virginia? Now I have a question for you. Is it legal to marry your first cousin in Virginia? Yeah. So let me say this as nice as I can. I don't want to hear any more West Virginia jokes. Because we outlawed that years and years ago. Now, now Virginia needs to work on its own legislation, okay? But nevertheless, it is not illegal to marry your first cousin in Virginia. But I will say, if you come to me for marriage counseling, it is not advised, okay? All right, so now that we've got that out of the way, let's look at the story of Jacob. Is really a story about Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and it's filled with trickery, deception, disappointment, jealousy, discontentment, and resentment. This is like a soap opera. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the coal fields, some of the people used to joke with the, the wives that would stay home and watch Days of Our Lives. Uh, I'm sure some of the men watched it too, but it was a constant changing drama about this one and this one, and the scenes changed. This is really what we're going to look at this morning. I mean, it is filled with all kinds of issues. And it's hard to put your finger on just one. But we're going to look at some, and that's why you're going to see I have about 35 lessons this morning, but not really. But you could pull so many lessons out of here that would be applicable to life, and real life, by the way, that are so helpful. But the bottom line is, out of all this mess, and it is a mess, our Savior comes from this mess. He actually comes from one of the children that we're going to read about this morning. And I'll talk to you more about that as the story goes. But the point is simply this. If you get nothing else, make sure you get this. That our God is able to reach down into the biggest messes of our life. And he's able to create uh, healing and goodness and work his purpose and his plan. Even when we think life is so messed up that God can never do anything with it. I'm here to give you hope today. You're going to see a picture of a mess. And yet our great God is able to take that mess and glorify himself through it. So if you're in a family with dysfunction and problems and issues, we have good news this morning. Are you ready? God can, does, and will use you. So have hope and take heart. Now we're going to look... Uh, and by the way, there's no intense conflict. Nothing can be more intense than family conflict. Did you know that? Whether it's between a husband and a wife or brother and sister or sister and sister, nobody can make you more upset than your family. Are y'all with me this morning? Okay, so I got two amens out of that and the rest of you are going, yeah, I mean, let me tell you. I mean, it's just a fact of life. It's just how life is. When we get close to one another, there's no raw hurt like family hurt. But how do you deal with that? And we're going to look at how God allowed them to deal with it this morning. So I broke this down into sections of four. Now what we're going to read is there's 12 tribes in Israel, right? Which, where are y'all looking? 12? 12 tribes in Israel. And so what you're going to see this morning is how the 12 tribes that come from Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob, God told him, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to bless you, your seed is going to be like the sand of the sea. God had a purpose and a plan for Jacob. Jacob went and tried to work his own plan out, and it got all messed up. And then Jacob just took another road. This really wasn't God's intended road for him. You're going to see in a moment, God's intention was for Jacob to marry Leah, not Rachel. Not the one that he was enamored with her beauty. His intention was to marry Leah. And God's only intention was Leah. But Jacob and Laban and all the rest made a great big mess out of it. And lo and behold, 
12 children come from all these relationships. And God ends up picking one of them to bring Jesus through, and that is the line of Judah. And so let's look this morning at the passage. I'm going to pick up a little bit earlier, because last week we left off when Jacob thought that he had married Rachel. He woke up in the morning after he had completed the seven years, and behold, it was Leah. Now, can you imagine how she felt? What? Leah the unloved. So now Laban and Jacob enter into another negotiation, and this is what Laban says. Complete the week of this one, Leah, the unloved, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. So he served seven years. He thought he was getting Rachel, but he got Leah. And what does Laban say? Finish out the week of festivity for her after you have her bridal week, seven days, Then I will give you Rachel, now you will have two wives, and then you will work seven more years for free for me and pay for both of my daughters. Good deal for for Laban, right? But Jacob here was now straddled with a conflict in the family. So Jacob did so, and he completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billah, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Now that's going to be important in just a few minutes because you're going to see how they were used. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Now you have this great conflict between these two women. The unloved is fruitful The loved can't have children. During this time in the Middle East, to not have a child was really a key to not be released from your father's house. Did you know that really you weren't able to be disassociated from your father's home until you had children? Your dad could keep you there. So fertility was a very important issue back during these times. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Now there's a play on the name Reuben and affliction, okay? So Leah begins naming her children by her pain. So every time you call his name, you think about pain. So Reuben was the healing of affliction. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he has given me a son also. And she called his name Simeon. So now we have two kids. Where's Rachel? And by the way, ladies, how much time has passed now? Nine and a half months to have one child, a little bit of a break. Nine and a half more. So now we're about two years into this, right? Still no child from Rachel. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And therefore she called his name Attached. And that's what Levi literally means, hooked to my hip. Therefore, his name was called Levi, and she conceived again. Wow! I mean, over and over. And you're going to find out in a minute, time with Leah was sparse, by the way. Because now we've got two women. And we've got one that Jacob really wants to be with, and one he doesn't. One can't give him kids, but the other's, you know, spitting them out left and right. So you've got all kinds of issues going on here. So notice what happens. This time I will praise the Lord, and therefore she called his name Judah, which means what? Praise. Now, by the way, for those of you who are very studious, and you've already picked up on this, which line or which tribe did Jesus come from? He came from the tribe of Judah, from the unloved Leah. Now just put that in your hip pocket for a moment, okay? I'll come back to that because I I have a good lesson on that. But nevertheless, after she has Judah, she ceased bearing. Now we're going to see where Rachel can't have children. Now Leah has ceased bearing. Now what's going to happen? Now you're going to see where these maidservants, Billah and Zilpah, come into play. Now notice what happens. We're going back to the text. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. 
She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now can't you see this? How come it works with you and Lee and it doesn't work with me? Give me children or I'm going to die. Now, what's Jacob do? He's not, the most, uh, he's not the most romantic when he replies to Rachel here, but perhaps he's irritated or whatever. But nevertheless, what, notice what he says. You think I'm God? Am I God? And then he pins her infertility on God. By the way, this is probably not advisable, guys. Um, overall, we might know that this is the, the bottom line, but... It's probably not the best counseling tactic to tell your wife, well, God's judging you and you can't have a woman. Now, let, I need to say this right now. You know, there are people who struggle with infertility and can't have children. And so what do they do? They initially think that God is judging them. Can I help you this morning? Let me help you. You were not in the lineage of the Messiah. You are not from the nation of Israel, and God is not going to bring a promised Messiah through you. I promise you that. I promise you. And so God includes stories like this in the Bible, not to give you personal application from, not for you to find your meaning and purpose in Leah or Rachel, but He gives you this information to show you what He did to bring about Jesus. He caused total dependence upon Him in order to bring the Messiah. And it was not going to be about man. Sarah was almost a hundred years old, past the point of fruit bearing. No children except a miracle of God. What happened to, to his father, Isaac and Rebekah? They could not have a child. What did Isaac do for Rebekah? He had to get down and beg and pray God. What did God do? He gave a child like he supposed. And now you have the story continuing. So, if you're a lady or you know someone that's struggling with fertility, if you really want a child, the best advice we can give is to be thankful that God put us in a country where we have data now that we can figure out what the problem is. Maybe the problem's not you. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe there's some genetic issue that is going on. Maybe you can have that problem fixed. Or maybe it's an issue of God allowing time or something else to come in. But please don't think you're under God's judgment because you can't have children. Please. That's a terrible label to put on yourself. And it's bad to go to the Bible and try to read these stories and put yourself in their place because you were not in the lineage of Jesus. Okay, now I'm done with that. That wasn't a point. I was going to preach a whole message on that sometime, but I got it out. Now you know the truth. So be set free and get out from under all that bondage or help someone else. So, we're going on. Then she said... Here is my servant Billa, go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So you got the picture? Rachel can't have a child, so now what does she do? She does exactly what Sarah did with who? What was her name? Hagar. And so she gives Billa, and this was a, I'm not even going to get into the issue here, but it was, a, it was done in such a way that Rachel could take credit for the child, okay? So what happens? She gave uh, him to her servant, Billa, as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Billa conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Now, get it, she's trying to take credit for Billa's son, who she named Dan, or my judge. God has judged me. And she's going to now take Billa's child as her own. Can you all imagine this? You all know what mother hormones are. How do you think Billa felt? She, was not a, she, she couldn't be a wife. She was just a handmaid. And now she has a child. And Rachel going to take her child? You know, I watched my wife have it. Have the, especially the firstborn. Wow at the hormones that come out in a woman in the firstborn. I, I can't even imagine what happens here. But you got all this turmoil going inside. Now Rachel's claiming this son from Billa. Mm. And by the way, you all remember what happened to the tribe of Dan? They were one of the first tribes to go into apostasy during the book of Judges. But anyway, other issues. Rachel says, uh, oh, I'm sorry. 
Rachel's servant Billah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Now it becomes just a, a conflict between two sisters. Rachel is doing all of this to try to get back at Leah. I told you sibling conflict is nasty here. So she now names her son what? She names him Naphtali, which means basically I've pinned my sister. I got her back. So now when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as wife. Now can you see Jacob? I mean, are y'all seeing the humor here? One tent, two tent, three tent, four. And Jacob just going from this one to this one to this one to this. I mean, he is such a passive... You, Jacob is such a passive guy. And this is what it's basically painting the picture of. The great father of Israel, the twelve tribes, cannot say no. He's being dominated by his wife, his father-in-law. I mean, let me tell you something, folks. God has this man bent over a barrel. I mean, he's working him over. And Jacob has no... I mean, he can't run back home because Esau is ready to kill him. He can't run away from Laban now because the woman he loves, he's been tricked out of. So what's he going to do? Now he's in the middle of this mess. He's got all these kids. And basically, he's working for free. I'm going to tell you something. God has a way... And he is teaching Jacob through the school of hard knocks what it means to depend upon him. And by the way, he'll eventually break him. So then Leah's uh, servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come to me. And she calls his name Gad. Good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she named his name Asher, which means what? I've taught y'all by now. It means happy. So it, now here's the question. Is she really happy? You know, isn't it amazing how we can give names to this and post this on Facebook and post this on social media and be just as miserable as we can possibly be? And yet when people look at us, they think we're so happy. Oh, they've got everything going right in life. I mean, she even named her child Happy. And she's as miserable as she can possibly be. Rachel has Jacob's love. Leah has Jacob's children. Rachel wants what Leah has. And Leah wants what Rachel has. And neither one of them can get it. And so we are now trading our maidservants. And now they've got children all over the place. What a mess. What a mess, right? Now, notice what happens. Four children by Leah and Rachel... Now, Rachel's going to try it. And by the way, Rachel was a trickster just like Jacob. Now, Leah is not totally innocent. I read some blogs this week about, by women about Leah the unloved, and they were trying to appeal to, to other women. And they were like, Leah, this poor innocent unloved. She wasn't as innocent as you think. I mean, she was willing to go into Jacob the night that Laban did the switcheroo and probably put on Rachel's clothes and her perfume would smell like her. Leah's not innocent either, okay? So when you read those blogs, just go, just smile a little bit. This whole family's messed up. But nevertheless, now you're going to see Rachel and Leah get into this ancient belief that they could partake of these mandrakes and somehow or another they could outwit God's plan. So, what does the text say to us? All right, in the days of wheat harvest... Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Now, what do you think has happened here? Rachel sees Leah's mandrakes. And what does Leah say? You've taken away my husband. Are y'all reading between the lines here? Which tent is Jacob staying in? Rachel's. Okay, I'm just trying to help y'all paint the picture. He's not sleeping with Leah, his first wife. And so now Rachel is, is uh, wanting mandrakes because she wants children. And Leah's like, you won't even let him come into my tent. So now there's going to be a little switcheroo. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight one night, in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Now, mandrakes, by the way, I've got a picture here in a minute. 
They were believed to be an aphrodisiac. And if I could get to the picture, I'll show them to you, but I'll have to come back and scroll through all that. This is a picture of a mandrake. Now, I don't need to make too much comment, do I? They, they appear like a human being. And also, there was a belief here that this, this uh, instrument also brought about some type of uh, fertility. I'll leave it at that. But nevertheless, let me get back to the text. This is what they were trading. So when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. What a mess going on here. I bought you tonight. Having to buy your husband. I told you this is a mess, folks. And you can't read anything pretty into this mess. It is nothing but a mess. You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So he lay with her that night. Now notice what happened. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived, and she bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have my servant to be my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which means what? <laughs> what a mess. So Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Honor. I mean, can you, can you imagine this? Trying to get her husband's affection through children. All kinds of issues here, folks. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. We're going to learn about Dinah here in a little while too. But the picture is painted of a passive father, aggressive women, and Jacob getting beat to death right in the middle, right? Then God remembered Rachel. Finally. How many years have passed here? Probably the full seven years. Maybe a tad bit more. So she has went almost seven years with no child of her own. And Leah has spit out how many now? Six or more. So actually we're probably about nine years into their marriage. And she now has a child. God remembered Rachel and God, He listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. <clears throat> and said, may the Lord add to me another son. So she wasn't satisfied. She wanted more. She wanted seven. If Leah had six, how many did she want? I mean, I've got to beat my sister. And by the way, just to point this out, give me children lest I die. Guess how Rachel dies? She dies by her very wish. She dies having a child. Her next child. So we have to be careful what we ask for, don't we? Now, as we think about this and you look at Jacob's tree, just let me show you this picture. <clears throat> Through Leah, he has seven children, six sons and a daughter. Zilpah too, Billah too, and then through Rachel, he has Joseph, and we'll come back to the last. But nevertheless, this is how God decided to bring about the wonderful 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Now, when I do pre-marriage counseling, I always make people read two books. One is by Gary Chapman, and the other is by Dr. Eggerson. And one is on love and respect, and the other is uh, things I wish I'd known before I got married. Gary Chapman tells the story about the, the tingles, and I always go into great detail about this. You know, when you fall in love at first, you think, I'm so in love, I'm so infatuated, I get these goosebumps. And they'll never leave me. But the problem is that after you get married, just a very short few months go by, and the tingles are gone. You don't feel that anymore. And so in the world's eyes, when you lose the tingle, you are now no longer in love. And Chapman says the greatest problem in, in divorce is people don't understand this before they get married. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. And feelings follow actions. So Chapman lays out in his book things he wished he had known. And then he talks about how to keep these tingles alive and how he keeps them going. Dr. Eggerson picks up on this and says that there are two great issues in marriage that make them function. 
And, and if these two are not concurrent in your marriage, you are going to have dysfunction. In this cycle, he calls the crazy cycle, which causes people to fight and have all kinds of problems. He says that when the husband doesn't show unconditional love to his wife, what does she do? She reacts. And what is the result? She shows him no respect. And so throughout all the relation, he's showing no love, she's showing no respect. So what do you have? You have a Jacob and Leah and Rachel situation. I mean, you just have craziness going on. He says, but then when you realize that you discover that your, your wife or your husband is longing for this from you, they are longing for unconditional love, your wife is. Your husband is longing for you to respect him unconditionally. And even though both are sinful and both have fallen short, we, out of our love and affection, we, our devotion, we give this to our spouse. And when we do this, there's this energizing cycle that causes us to want to love one another and to respect one another, and it causes a healthy marriage. And then comes the reward cycle. And when you reach this cycle in his book, and there's a lot of details in between, by the way, he says that this is where you actually have an enjoyable, healthy marriage because he is going to love her unconditionally regardless of her actions, her behaviors, or the way she treats him. If, even if she decides on one occasion or two or three not to show, uh, not, not to show her love, she's going to continue to show him unconditional respect. And she's going to learn how to word that in such a way that he not only hears it, but he sees it. And the husband, if his wife doesn't show him unconditional respect, he's going to choose to show her unconditional love no matter how she does. And so this creates this healthy, energizing, rewarding cycle that causes bliss in marriage. Now that's the idea, folks, and that's where we want to go. And you're welcome for that Valentine's Day message. I should preach three whole sermons on this, but I've got to get on with it, okay? What are some lessons that we learn about God? Okay, that one came to me this morning about God putting this in here to show the nation of Israel, uh, you came from craziness. By the way, did you know that in Deuteronomy chapter 26, I'm not going to turn there, you can read it. Deuteronomy chapter 26, God told the nation of Israel when they would go out in their garden and the very first fruits came, they'd have to pick them and put them in a basket. He said, you're to carry these to the priest and give thanks to God and you're to rehearse and say this, we came from a crazy man from uh, Jacob back yonder in the sticks with a, with a messed up life. And God's faithfulness brought us all the way through Egypt to here. God had them rehearse that. We came from a wandering Aramean. He was, he was crazy. That's where we came from, but God was faithful. But anyway, God sees the unloved and the overlooked in life. Do you know that Proverbs says, I'm, I'm thinking it's chapter 24, it may be 18, do not rejoice when God punishes your enemy, lest he look and see you happy and stop punishing them. Do you also know that in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18, that God forbid exactly what happened here in the life of Jacob uh, with Leah and Rachel. You see, this happened way before the Mosaic Law. But when you get over in the book of Leviticus, God said that, that no man was allowed to marry the wife of his sister if, if the one was still alive. There would be no rivalries like this. He forbade that. So... God looks down on unloved Leah, and what does he do to her? He opens her womb. What do you think this teaches us about our own selves in life when we appear to be overlooked? When you are overlooked, whether it's in your job, in your promotion, in your marriage, in your life, in your family, when you are overlooked, let me assure you, there are bigger eyes on you than you think. God pays attention to those who are overlooked. And he did that with Leah. A second lesson we learned about God is he doesn't allow physical beauty or the lack thereof to impact his plans and purposes. Isn't it amazing how God doesn't take the beautiful woman to bring about Jesus? He takes the one with weak eyes, interpret it as you wish. And God takes that woman and that unloved person 
that one who was not beautiful and, and desired. And he makes her the one that the Messiah would come through. By the way, I could preach on this for a long time. But I hope you get the point. I need to move on. God pursues us even when others do not. Here is poor Leah wandering around unloved, can't get her husband's attention. He's infatuated with her sister. On and on the story could go. And what does God do? He comes down and chases after her. He hears her. Now yes, God finally hears Rachel, but I think it's very evident that God wanted and desired His plan to be through Leah. And so here you have this picture of an awesome God who does exactly opposite of what you and I believe. What, what do we believe? We believe that the one who gets all the recognition in this life has succeeded. May I remind you that the lasting life hasn't occurred yet. What does Jesus tell people about getting honor here on earth? You, you, want, you want honor here on earth? Seek it. You've got it. Because it's not going to last there. But if you want honor there, deny yourself here. Who's the greatest in the future kingdom? He who is the lowest and who is servant. Never complain about being a servant in this life because servanthood in this life is promotion in the, in the next life. I mean, you won't walk through the door of glory in the next life without servanthood in this life. And let me tell you something. If you recognize that, your whole life will change. Instead of wanting to be served, you will seek to be a servant. And God's Word is true. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Not he who is served, but he who is servant of all. Who is the greatest servant? So this is a point that we must, must remember in our life. Now, what are some lessons we learn about ourselves? Are y'all ready for this? I know this, some of this is a punch in the gut, isn't it? But nevertheless, it's true and we need to hear it. What are some lessons we learn about ourselves? Did you know that even when God blesses us, our human nature is still so hard to satisfy? I want you to think about Leah. Spit out one, spit out two, spit out three, spit out four. I mean, Leah, she, she cannot be satisfied. And, and this is Leah the unloved. God is blessing her so much. She has all these children. She has everything that a woman could ask for except her husband's love. And what did she say? If you'll just give me children, and then if you'll just give me this, she couldn't be satisfied. What about Rachel? All she wanted was Jacob, but then when she got Jacob, guess what? Jacob wasn't enough. And then she had to have children. And then when she finally had one child, one wasn't enough. She had to have another one. What does that teach us about human life? What does it teach us, folks? We are very hard people to please. Lord, give me this job. I'll never complain again. Lord, meet the need of this bill. I'll never ask for money again. Lord, just give me that house and I'll never want another one. And we all know. My dad would always say this saying, and I got so tired of hearing it, but the, the older I get, the more I realize how right he was. Are you ready? Every time we complain, this is what my dad would say. The flesh can never be satisfied. The flesh can never be satisfied. Wow. You know, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Stop seeking after riches and things that you think is going to bring satisfaction to your life because they won't do it. But learn to be content with what you have because godliness with contentment is great gain. Because you brought nothing into this world and everything you're spending all your energy on and all your time on, you're not going to take one piece of it out with you. Not one coin, not one cent. I met with a financial advisor several years ago. Somebody told me, you, you better get your, uh, start investing in a retirement portfolio. I said, well, what is that? And they said, well, you'll, you'll learn when you're 62 and 65 what that is. So I went and talked to a retirement portfolio, tried to get an IRA set up, didn't know what that was. 
And this is what the financial advisor asked. What do you want your legacy to be? I was like, wow, I mean, my legacy. Well, I would like to be known as an honest man who loved the Lord and was good to my family and faithful. Oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Oh, well, what do you mean? Your, your, your legacy. Okay, I'm trying to figure this out. And by this time, they figure out I'm pretty dense when it comes to financial legacy. Do y'all know what that means, by the way? Your legacy is how much you, when you die, how much you have in the bank and how you give that to somebody. That's your legacy. And I said, well, I think we have two different definitions on, on legacy here. Uh, I didn't know that's what that meant. She said, oh, yeah, your legacy is really what you're worth when you die. I said, oh, wow. <laughs> Lawyers are crafty, aren't they? But nevertheless, the flesh can never be satisfied. We have to work on that. A second lesson we learn is this. And by the way, get a hold of this because when this hit me this week, I had to write it down. This, this is one of those ones that caught me with a pad. I had to go find a pad immediately. Comparison is the thief of contentment. You know, when we strive in our life to be content and God blesses us and God gives us something and we're, we are happy with it until we can think or look at someone else. And the moment that we look or think at someone else, what happens? All of a sudden, our contentment becomes discontentment. Our happiness now becomes sadness. And our blessedness becomes comparison. And I want you to know something, folks. This is not easy. But this is so true. And this is such a lesson that we can learn. Comparison is the, is the thief. It will steal contentment. Don't compare in your life with you and anyone else. The scripture that comes to mind is the Apostle John when Jesus had rose from the dead and he was talking to Peter and Peter and John and Peter and Jesus were there talking and Jesus said something to John that really bothered Peter. And Peter went up to him and he said, he heard, he'd tell John about all oh, he would do this and Peter said, oh, what about me, Lord? And Jesus said, well, you're going to go where you don't want to go and somebody's going to bind your hands and take you. And Peter was like, oh. and he looked over and caught John out of the corner of his eye and he said, well, what about him? What about him? You know what Jesus said? You don't worry about him. You worry about you. You follow me. You follow me. What I do in his life is my business. What I do in your life, that's between you and me. You follow me. Quit comparing yourself to Him. You'll never find satisfaction. None of us will. We'll never find satisfaction comparing ourselves with somebody else. Your marriage, your children, your job, your family. I mean, stop comparing it with everybody else and thinking, oh, if I just had them, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. There'd be something that would come up. So whatever situation God's put you in life right now, make the best of it. Make the best of it. Lesson number three, jealousy of others takes our eyes off the blessings of our life. When we become so jealous of someone else that we just can't stand to see God bless them or prosper them or allow them to be happy, when, when we are eat up with jealousy, the cancer of the soul, by the way, it causes us to take our eyes off of the blessings in our own life. God is truly so good to us every day. And I mean this, I, I try to practice this. Every time that I become discontent, I remember what an old fella told me one time. Learn, he says, son, learn to be thankful for the small things. And I remind you this every so often. How many of you have eyes to see this morning? Let me tell you something. You don't understand what a blessing that is till it's taken away. How many of you have ears to hear? A tongue with taste buds. Teeth to chew. A throat to swallow. Feet to stand. Hands to hold. Fingers to grab. We are so blessed. Blessed. 
And yet somehow we overlook the most important blessings in life. And as Brian and Larry would remind us, if you have someone in your life that you love, put your arms around them, call them, talk to them, tell them you love them, show compassion and care for them, because this life doesn't always hold that. So take advantage of every little chance you have and do it. And here's another lesson that came. I told you they were wild and random this week. God can and will use children from homes of chaos and tension. Now, aren't you, aren't you glad of this? God can and will use people from broken and tattered homes to do some of His greatest work. Look at Christian ministry. And this is a testimony that I could tell you story after story of men in ministry who came from brokenness, sadness, and desperation in homes. And yet God took some of those men and some of those women and put them on the mission field, and they have become the greatest servants ever. So whatever situation you find yourself in, stop feeling sorry for yourself or your children or somebody else's children. God can use them. Encourage them. Give them hope. Because God is an incredible, gracious, and great God. He'll do that. And then we must learn to look for glimmers of hope and kindness even in our disappointments. This is God's hand of grace. And I think this is exactly what He was teaching. Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Billa, Zilpah, He was teaching all of them. that He's still in control. He's still good when life and things are out of control. God is still on His throne. He's still working His purpose. And even when we think things have gone totally chaotic and totally crazy, God is still there working. You want to know why? Because God reaches down into the messes of life, into the messes of life, and He does His greatest work. In the fullness of time, Jesus the Messiah would be born from the house of David, the tribe of Judah, through the son of the unloved Leah. So our Savior came into the world out of the midst of family turmoil, motherly strife, sisterly warfare, all kinds of problems. And you know why He came? He came to bring us into His family to give us peace. Some of the sweetest words Jesus ever said, He told His disciples, I, Peace I leave you. Not the world's peace do I leave you. I leave you my peace and nobody can ever take it away. I am going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. My Father. And, and you are my brothers and sisters. He calls us His family. So here's my hope. If you're in, an, in a chaotic family in your human life, when you become part of God's family, you have a Father you have brothers and sisters. I'm going to tell you something, folks. And you have one who sticks closer than anybody else. He'll never leave. And won't, won't eternity be wonderful when we get to spend it with our Lord who allows us, yes, we call Him our Lord, but He calls us His brother. We're His brothers. And He's sharing His heirship with us. We are joint heirs with Christ. Now that's what you call a, a generous, gracious brother-savior, if you'll allow me to put it that way. What a family we are born into when we, by faith, trust Jesus for eternal life. I tell you, it, we haven't seen the half of the wonders of life and how wonderful it's going to be. So let me remind you again that God reaches down into some of the biggest messes of our life and He wrenches out hope he wrenches out grace and healing and goodness even though we make a mess or we're in a mess. God still works. Aren't you glad? Father, thank you this morning for your hand of guidance, your work in our life, your help, your hope for Jesus our Savior. And thank you, Father, for giving us stories like this that teach us truths about you, about ourselves, 
So help us as we walk through this life and encounter problems and troubles and struggles. We know that you're taking all of that and you're working it out for your good. You're turning us into the image of your Son. Sometimes it's through hardship. Sometimes it's through disappointment. Sometimes it's through trials. But whatever it is, we know that the potter's hand is still on the clay. And when the heat is up, your hand is still there. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the person of Jesus who came from this lineage of a mess where you had worked and prepared since the foundation of the world how he was going to come and through whom he would come. And thank you that you give us pictures, not of perfection, but Father of your perfect hand working in the midst of the imperfection of humanity to bring about Jesus our Savior who would come to this earth and die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to offer us eternal life through His death, burial, and resurrection, that if by faith we would trust Him, we could be saved and be a part of the greatest family ever, the family of God. Thank you for Him this morning. We worship Him, we worship you, and we thank you for the truth of your word and the hope that you give us through Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would meet the needs and the hearts of every person here this morning. I am sure there are people here that have conflict and turmoil in their family and in their home. And I pray this morning that you will meet their needs. Do what they can't. Change the heart that they can't. Teach them the lesson that you want them to learn from the, the difficult person or the difficult situation. And give them grace where they see evidently and abundantly that your hand is upon them. Give them peace, we do pray. And we do this in Jesus' name. With your head still bowed and eyes closed, I want to give you just a moment to talk to God while Christian prays, while he, while he sings. And if there's something in your life you need to turn over to the Lord, maybe it's something in your family, maybe it's a conflict, maybe some kind of problem, you talk to God right now. And after a few seconds, Christian's going to lead us in our closing song.